0: You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim.
1: Hey, Jeff. How are you? Oh, not so bad. Yourself? Pretty good. Happy St. Patty's Day.
0: Yeah. Happy St. Patty's Day. Can't say I'm a I- celebrator of it, but Okay.
1: Well, as the resident Irishman on the podcast, I, I it's a it's a holiday I have to celebrate. But I've got to say, so this is the first time we've done an episode where I've gotten the hiccups, and I've got the hiccups really bad today, <laughs> all day. But I did I did not start the I did not start this day by drinking green beer.
0: Uh, Maybe, uh, you know, I don't even know if that's a good a good enough excuse, but you no joke like we've been on calls pretty much all day for our our real work and uh, it has been the same thing. I feel bad for you because it's got to be painful at some point where you just can't stop hiccuping. Um, So I guess best of luck to you and us as we go through this this episode.
1: Well, it seems to go away for a while. And then, you know, what happened was um, like right before we started the podcast, it started up. And it's kind of like remember when we first started. It would always be the day, the day we recorded. The landscaping crew would show up and mow the lawn and make all that yeah. noise. Well, for me, it's the hiccups, and this is actually a lot worse than the, than the landscaper showing up.
0: Yeah. Well, if I do more talking, you know, that's fine. I, I can cover as much as I can. I don't. I don't want you to be in pain. This this show should not be painful for you, Jim. How about
1: that? It shouldn't be painful for anyone.
0: <laughs> this is true. We can't control what other people feel. So um, we'll just focus <laughs> on ourselves. How about that?
1: That sounds good. Go ahead. Go with it then, man.
0: <laughs> All right. So why don't we get into our topic today, which I am extremely excited and actually fascinated to talk about. And this is the topic of identity data fabrics. This is something that we've had a few different conversations over, over the last couple of weeks, I think, that has kind of referenced this space of fabric fabric. In identity, and it sounds kind of weird, so we're gonna get into a little bit more. And to help us with that conversation, we've got Dieter Schuller. He's the Chief Revenue Officer at Radiant Logic. Welcome to the show, Dieter.
2: It's great to be here, thanks.
0: Yeah, thank you much so much for joining us. And you know, this I find this topic really interesting because I feel like this is kind of where identity has been going for the last couple of years, but also solves some pretty interesting issues when it comes to how do you keep data together Um, and making sure that it actually be leveraged across any number of systems to be able to take advantage of the data that that gets collected through it. But before we get to all that, what I'd like to find out is your origin story. You've been in in this space for a while, and we're actually um, regional mates. You live about, I would say, 45 minutes south of me. Um, But tell us about your identity journey. How did you get into this space? Is it something that you chose or did it choose you?
2: It absolutely chose me. When we went to market with Radiant uh, over 20 years ago, we were a data integration or a data management play. And our, our secret sauce was that we, were, we would have the ability to bring together data from all these different silos and expose it in, at the time, what was referred to as hierarchies, which you know probably more likely today is referred to as directed graphs. And the language of hierarchy or directed graph at the time was LDAP. So by virtue of us picking LDAP as the protocol, we ended up in the identity space because the only people that knew what LDAP was was the directory people. And the directory people were, at the time, all about uh, security. And that has evolved into what today is identity.
0: And now you're, so So you've been with Radiant Logic for for how long now?
2: I've been there for 22 years.
0: That is a long time. And my first exposure to Radiant Logic was, well, probably about 20 years ago, I guess. And, you know, is that Kind of meta directory, virtual directory approach, pulling together you know disparate LDAPs, kind of like what you mentioned. But what are I know that you guys do more than that. So what's your what's your elevator pitch to people who are not familiar with Radiant Logic, just to bring them up to speed?
2: So we invented the virtual directory. Uh, that kind of morphed into what we called a, a federated identity service. Uh, which has morphed into what we now call the identity data fabric. Our, our key value prop, and we can learn a lot from other disciplines, and, and I'd love to cover some of that. But our key value prop is that we provide a way to connect to all of the different uh, silos of identity information and the context around that, bring it together, rationalize it, unify it, and make it so that it's available to anything that wants to consume it with the right schema, the right protocol, the right structure, uh, with all the right data.
0: And I think the idea there is that as part of that consolidation is is letting disparate systems live or silos of data live in conjunction with building kind of this overall view. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a kind of balance between uh, respecting the legacy and enabling the future. Because the challenge that a lot of these large organizations have is they have so much that's so much mission critical stuff that's dependent on what's there, they can't possibly decommission that or even change it because stuff's gonna break, but they wanna use it to kind of create something for the future that's better.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly my my exposure to it. Um, you know, having looked back on it it was literally pulling together dozens of ldaps into one central data store which obviously solved a lot of problems uh, you know that we were facing at the time. You know, I'm curious chief revenue officer is an amazing title. Um, you know, I picture stacks of cash laying around your office, maybe gold coins, you know, things like that. What does a chief revenue officer do?
2: I spend most of my day counting it, but when I'm <laughs> not doing that, um, it's it's basically three things, right? I evangelize. I'm responsible for all of our uh, partner relationships, and then I'm responsible for making sure that we we generate revenue and keep our customers happy. Okay,
0: so let's get into identity because we or, or identity fabrics, I should say we had paul fisher on from cooperinger cole um a few weeks ago episode 136 if you want to check back into that one and we talked a little bit about the identity fabric and also this concept of dream and things like that um, what is an identity fabric and i guess how does that differ from just a general data fabric or an identity data fabric
2: yeah so let's let's talk about um, data fabrics first because i think we can learn a lot from other disciplines if you if you go read gartner Uh, they have a a market space or a magic quadrant that they call data fabric. And in there are very large organizations, software organizations like uh, Informatica or Talent or uh, some of the innovative players like Denodo uh, and even TIBCO, right? And, And their key value prop is that they bring together data from disparate silos that have evolved over time in large organizations that will help organizations make better business decisions. But the play is primarily around business intelligence, data warehousing, right? Uh, not necessarily focused on security. But but the, the industry has understood that that's an important layer. And without that, your company can't make good business decisions, right? So you take that and you apply it to the discipline of identity, where it's all about making decisions, uh, important business decisions, right? With regard to who gets access to what. And in fact, those business decisions have to be made in much more real-time ways than you would in in the, in the, Business intelligence or data warehousing world. Why wouldn't you need that same layer in the world of identity and access management? So what we've done is we've we've learned from the the data fabric and we've applied it to identity and we've created the identity data fabric. Now the the other term that um, is being bantered about by the likes of uh, Gartner and Cooping or Cole is the identity fabric. And the identity fabric is more of an architecture that enables organizations to manage all of the identity related tasks like authentication, access control, governance, uh, privileged account management, right? Through uh, ideally no code workflows, um, but, but it's much more than just the data, right? So we focus on the data and we believe that there is a, a competitive advantage that uh, you get when you have all the right data in the right way, and you don't have to, to create a project within a project for every single thing that requires data.
0: I would imagine, I'm already thinking of things like um, attribute-based access control, for example, being able to leverage any number of attributes that come in as a part of this number of disparate sources right, into this central repository and being able to drive decisions off that.
2: ABAC is huge. If you look at a typical ABAC architecture, there's usually a policy decision point, a policy enforcement point, a policy administration point, and then an, oh, by the way, there's this policy information point that we kind of just assume has everything that we need in order to effectively define and, and uh, manage policies that reflect our business. If the data is not there, right, you can't, you can't really uh, define and enforce a policy. And in fact, I would argue that it's a lot easier to administer policies, right? One of the most difficult things around any kind of uh, policy initiative is you go ask the business people, well, what is your policy? And they don't know. They can't articulate it. They could articulate it a lot better if they had the data in front of them, right, to see what the rules might be. And I think that's where the the game can be changed.
0: Well, I think it also you get some simplicity too from a you know integration standpoint. There's fewer points for those policies to go and make those decisions on. Right, you're collecting it from one area. There's probably improved latency or redundancy that can be put in place to kind of support some of that integration. Am I thinking about that right?
2: You're you're absolutely spot on. And and we in fact what we've seen consistently in these projects that we've been involved in is it started as you know, the application is going to reach out to source A because that has whatever certification that the user has from the learning management system and then source B because that has the project they're working on and source C because that has their location. And by the time you do the round robin on that, you've got a lot of latency. And this this is stuff that you know it requires millisecond response time. So it's, it's just not viable without something that centralizes it and caches it and makes it available at the speed of a directory.
0: So what does this look like, I guess, because I'm, I'm kind of bouncing between conceptual and theoretical versus the real world. Yeah. Is this, you know, one big fabric, is it multiple fabrics and kind of layers? Are we kind of like doing inception here where we've got <laughs> different levels uh, of fabrics that kind of form this overall thing, or is, do you see it more, maybe as like one big fabric and each part of that fabric is maybe part of like a quilt or something or a pattern, and he kind of plugs in as part of that bigger overall scene.
2: I, I think it's never one big fabric because this stuff evolves over time, and people you know use it to solve specific problems, and then it starts to grow because they start to see the value of it. And there's a lot of overlap. If you look at, for example, uh, you know the the data fabric world, there's uh, master data management products, right? They they do a lot of this. There's customer data integration products where if you look at this, the CIM side of this, right, you start to deal with, with uh, those types of projects, right? Uh, all of that makes up the fabric. And then uh, if you focus that on identity and you speak the protocols of identity and you uh, uh, focus it on, on providing real-time response, right? You can start to build layers of this fabric for different use cases and, and start to bring it together and it becomes more valuable as you start to add sources.
0: So if if you've got all these fabrics, and I guess identity is probably just one of them. I would imagine there's similar concepts for other things like marketing or maybe privacy or or maybe they're built into the identity one. What do you is that the case? Like, what do you typically see? Is it just, you know, different fabrics for different use cases like you mentioned or do you see some overlap in some of those use cases?
2: I see a lot of overlap. If you if you sh- if you start looking at workforce, it's primarily the the security team right that starts to think about that and see value in it but the minute you start looking at C, uh, customer identity and access management it's sales it's marketing it's the business units right all of them uh, start to to really see the value of this fabric because it's not just an enabler for better security it's also an enabler for cross sell upsell Uh, retention, uh, customer acquisition, user experience, right? All the things that are important from a business perspective, right? And and it also drives, you know, business agility. It also enables things that you couldn't otherwise do. There's tremendous value that that you get from this beyond just security.
0: I can see, uh, you know, some scenarios too, where you're pulling in all this data and, right, I think one of the immediate concerns that this Really become a lot more prevalent over the last couple years from society is privacy concerns and being able to manage sort of you know what does this thing know about me i think of privacy controls from you know the big social media companies facebook instagram twitter right all those folks and even then now you know areas like gdpr or you know other similar um, you know regulations or, or laws where there are some rules around what you can and can't keep from an information standpoint. So the privacy implications are, are pretty large. Is this a scenario where something like a data fabric makes it easier for an organization to, I guess, comply with some of those regulations or those concerns or make it easier for maybe even an end user to be able to kind of manage what someone knows about them?
2: I think it's both. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um... The, the California version of GDPR, right? One of the things, and, and and there's others like this, but one of the things that is in there is if I'm a uh, a customer or a prospect that has interacted with you as a business, you need to be able, if I ask you, you need to be able to tell me everything you have about me, right? Without a, a, a data fabric, there's no way, right, that most of these organizations can actually achieve that goal, right? There's no way they can actually go back and tell you, hey, Jeff, this is everything I have about you. So from that perspective, it's absolutely critical. Um, A lot of these um, uh, components of compliance legislation also, depending on how you interpret them, uh, will prohibit you. For example, Germany or Japan or Holland, right? Will prohibit you from storing certain information outside of the country, right? And what this fabric does, depending on how you architect it, is it allows the data to remain where it needs to remain, but still be accessible when it needs to be accessed. So that's the the second example. But but the other one is, uh, if I'm a if I'm an actual customer or user, I can define things in a way that get masked. So for example, right, um, the organization might have my birthday, but I can say I want this exposed to these things or or these applications only in terms of am I 21 or older or not. Right. So there's a lot of Real-life examples of where uh, a solid identity data fabric can help with uh, compliance and with with making sure that you're adhering to some of these initiatives.
0: So that data residency thing that you brought up, I find that interesting. So if data, if you're if you're creating a data fabric, and it's sourced, you know, from one country and has to stay in one country, I guess my feeble brain thinks, okay, <laughs> we've got this fabric. You know, it, is it? Where is the residency then at that point? Isn't it just everywhere, I guess? what's What's been your exposure to that? Because I'd love to get into that just a little bit more because I find that a little bit confusing maybe.
2: One of the things that I think that one of the advantages that the identity data fabric provides is that it, it can either bring the data all together physically or bring the data together logically, depending on how you architect it. And you have both options, right? So you can say, I'm going to make a, a copy of this data and cache it. And make sure that the cache is always reflective of what the underlying or authoritative sources reflect, right? And that buys me the ability to bring the data closer to the consumer, right, to the application, and/or I can architect it in a way where I say, no, when the request is made to the identity data fabric, it's going to go and request that from the underlying source, and the underlying source is in Germany or in Japan or in Holland, right? So you get that flexibility.
0: So I guess in that case, the the data that's being queried and I guess in maybe in that either real time or near real time is a little more ephemeral. So then you may be able to kind of get around, okay, well, where does the actual data live, right? Or <laughs> is it actually yeah. housed? It's more of a, I think it was almost like it's a view of a table versus the actual uh, table.
2: And the term that you're using is exactly what we do, right? If you're familiar with the relational world, you go to your DBA and you say, hey, I, I need information about these six tables and the. DBA will give you a view right? that makes it easy for you and gives you exactly what you're asking for. What you're doing in the world of identity data fabric is you're creating those views, um, which makes it make it very easy for you to get exactly what you want in the way that you want it, right? including the ability to, to navigate a hierarchy or a directed graph so that you get progressive disclosure. Right? And that also allows the administrator to say, I'm not going to show you this data, I'm going to show you this data in, in only a certain way. Um, and that's the yeah, you know, that's part of the value of this.
0: I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me and And now I'm taking my brain over to the wonderful world of blockchain <laughs> because I think there's a similar premise there where the idea is there's you've got this you know decentralized data fabric you know, for lack of a better term, where there are pieces of data that the consumer or whatever the blockchain is is running, right, has the ability to kind of turn on individual bits or things like that. Um, is, is that something that makes sense in the world of identity data fabrics or identity or data fabrics in general? Does, is, is blockchain a thing that, that there's, you know, I feel like blockchain has been like this great solution looking for a problem. (laughs) Um, and I, and I know there's a lot of vendors in this space that like to kind of hop on the blockchain wagon, whatever is hot at the time. And I'm not saying that, that, you know, that this is the way it is right now, but, I see a use case there where you're essentially doing the same type of thing, right? With between blockchain and, and identity data fabric and being able to kind of leverage the best of both worlds from a technology standpoint.
2: So so the type of data that we typically focus on is what I would call reference data, right? And where I think blockchain really shines is in uh, what I would call transactional data, right? So blockchain is just a, a ledger that doesn't re- require a central authority and can be really valuable in helping from an audit perspective, for example, right? I need to know uh, who made this change and I need to be darn sure that that you know that 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 happened this way. Uh, so I think there's lots of applications I don't think I personally don't think blockchain is going to significantly change the game and identity, uh, but I think if we utilize it effectively, it will help us to uh, marry what I would call the contextual data with the transactional data and make it even more valuable and I see a lot of that uh, usage. Or, or potential usage in the world of uh, for example user behavior analytics right which is all transactions right this is what this is what somebody did or this is what somebody is doing and if you if you can take that effectively and marry it with all of the contextual data about the user you get a lot fewer false positives and you can make a lot better decisions at the time that this is happening about do i let this go do i step it up in terms of authentication or do i kill it because you've got more data to make good decisions based on
0: I think that makes sense. I think, you know, one of the promises of blockchain is being able to kind of control your own data. And now that leads me down to who owns the data. If we're talking about a data fabric, I guess who owns the the ownership question is probably pretty complex, right? Is the individual data, the fabric itself and all the services go along with it, but who owns an identity data fabric typically?
2: Yeah, I mean the the world that we come from, you know, is what I would call an enterprise-centric view of the world, right? So we don't really spend much time looking at it from the the, the user's perspective in terms of them owning their own data, but in, in the enterprise world, it it depends. If you're talking about uh, workforce and if these are security-focused projects, it's usually the security architects that own this fabric, right? Sometimes it's the, you know, quote unquote directory guys, because they're the ones that historically were the the source of truth for uh, identity information. And this is just an extension of that because there are multiple directories and this fabric is just bringing them all together. But as you get closer to the business, uh, what we're finding is that in many cases, it's the the data architects or the data management team um, that owns this, uh, because they have a much more holistic view of uh, not just identity or security data, but all of the data within the organization and and all of the same um, disciplines and requirements that you have with other data apply to this.
0: Yeah, I remember about a decade ago, Hadoop was all the rage and creating all these big data lakes and views and trying to consolidate all this information. I haven't kept up with it, so I, I don't know if <laughs> if data lakes are even still a thing or if that's still, you know, the the trend, but I absolutely see data fabrics and identity data fabrics being of great significance to an organization, especially the more complex organizations that might have all those silos out there. So I can certainly see why, you know, the folks in the data side or maybe the, you know, the directory side or even security side would be very interested in seeing that. But it also then leads me to believe, okay, well, what's, we've got this data fabric. What's the governance look like over that? Because you've got the data, you've got the fabric itself, the identity data fabric itself, but then you've also got the actual identity data.
2: Who's responsible for what? Yeah. And governance is a good point. Uh, I want to come back to Hadoop for just a second, right? We've been paying attention to it because underneath this is, uh, we use Hadoop for storage and we use Lucene to make sure that everything is indexed and searchable. Uh, So we, and that's what, what makes it scalable. And that's what allows it to provide as much context, uh, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about context at some point as well, but that's what allows it to to provide as much context as is necessary for whatever use case. But whenever you have data that you're making decisions on, governance is absolutely critical, right? And governance today, right, most people, when they think about uh, governance, they think about, well, let's make sure we've got the right roles. But if you're making decisions based not on a role, but based on data attributes, right, uh, anyone that's in this location can get access to these uh, sensitive resources. Uh, you have to put governance on the data. You have to make sure that the, the location is valid, right, and accurate, and that there's a, a process for making sure that that gets updated effectively. Because uh, if, you, if you make a decision based on somebody's location and it's wrong, right, you're making bad decisions. I remember I was in a meeting at a very large financial institution, who shall remain nameless, where the light bulb went on for everyone in the meeting because they figured out that somebody could actually change their own manager without any kind of an audit trail. Right. And it was like a, an aha moment going, wait a minute, this, this is a real problem for us. Right. Uh, And and they were making decisions based on somebody's manager. So governance is absolutely critical to this whole thing.
1: Yeah. I think the other thing with data lakes that I think about a lot is that, um, you know, conceptually they're like data warehouses, right? Usually that's how they're used where the data is not, real-time data like it would be in the source of record and when you're talking about a you know this kind of virtual directory concept or um the the identity data lake or i'm sorry the, (laughs) the identity data fabric you're talking about connecting to source of record systems so that you can have up to the second type of data or you can even set the um you could set it so that if you are synchronizing the data to keep it local, you could do it in you know, near real time.
2: Yeah, and so you look at this from a 30,000 foot level and, and it appears that the use cases are, are very similar. Uh, when you start to peel the onion on the details, you start to realize that, that there are some significant differences. For example, you look at data lakes, data warehouses, right? Those are primarily meant to help you do uh, analysis on trends. Show me everyone who's, uh, you know, it's the classic diapers and beer story, right? Show me everyone who's buying diapers and who's also buying beer because on Wednesday, it's dad's turn to go to the grocery store and he's got to babysit, so he's going to buy both, right? Um, If you ask that question and you get the answer in an hour, uh, it's not a problem. If you get it in in 12 hours, it's usually not a problem, right? Because you're using it to make uh, high-level business decisions. If you look at that from an identity data fabric perspective, you ask that same question, you're usually asking it because the user is at your front door and they need access to a resource. And if it takes more than a few milliseconds, right, they're already going to abandon this, especially if it's on the CIM side. But even on the workforce side, right, they're going to get frustrated. So there's some significant differences in terms of use case as well.
0: You said you want to talk about context as part of this kind of discussion. What what did you mean by that? Let's get into that. Yeah.
2: So one of the things that always comes up when we talk to um, our customers is this whole idea of what is identity, right? Is identity just the user ID and password? Is it uh, the groups that you're in in Active Directory? Is it other key attributes that are used for entitlement purposes or access purposes? Or is it all of the context around that that help you make not only good decisions, but provide a good experience. So for example, right, you look at, especially on the customer side, oftentimes the business decisions that are made are based not just on the person, but the company that that person works for. We did a a dealer portal, right, where the rule was anyone that's a five-star dealer or or, or any person that works for a five-star dealer um, gets access to this resource. Well, in order for me to determine that, I have to understand the relationship between the person, the dealer. And what what was referenced as, or what was called the dealer group, because it's the dealer group that actually tells you whether they're five-star or not, right? So the context, and and if you look at, for example, um, the world of telco, right? It used to be that um, uh, companies like Comcast, for example, focused primarily on households. Now they have to understand the relationships between households and accounts, because you could actually have multiple accounts in a household, and accounts and people, because you could have multiple people that are tied to an account and people in devices because somebody could have multiple devices. So if you want to do something like parental controls, if you don't understand all of the context around that, and if you're not able to, to effectively navigate those relationships, you can't effectively make good business decisions or enable uh, something like parental controls. So context is all of, the, all of the data around that identity that makes that meaningful and, and that allows you to act on it.
0: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting use case that you brought up there around the context and in, in the households. I'm thinking of a news article that I saw I remember it yesterday or maybe it was earlier today about, you know, Netflix and sharing of passwords and them trying to now monetize people sharing their accounts. I would imagine having the data of, you know, IP addresses and trying to tie that to the billing account address would probably help monetize or at least attempt to monetize some of those folks, um, it, you know. The, the idea of Comcast, for example, um, you know, yeah, you can have a house, right, that has residential service, but then also maybe a separate business line and being able to kind of pull that information together is is, a, is very powerful, especially in those cross-marketing uh, situations, which I know marketers love this type of data, right? Getting the things like progressive profiling and being able to kind of make it easy for people to spend money or for you to be able to market service to it. So I could see that fabric being very helpful. I can see it being helpful also in the identity space of being able to pull together those, that part of the information together to write even a better you know, authentication experience or an author, authorization experience in some
2: cases. Yeah, I mean, you bring up uh, as, a, as a very simple example the authentication experience. You cannot achieve single sign-on in a world where the user has multiple IDs unless you know all of the IDs that belong to that user. Because even if you authenticate with one ID, when you go to application B and the application knows the user in, the, in a different context, right, with a different ID, if you don't pass that ID to the application, you still don't get single sign-on. So data integration is an absolutely critical component of achieving single sign-on, and without an identity fabric, you end up doing that uh, in in a custom way at the at the SSO la- layer, which is which is a lot of custom coding. And then, when I think about, if, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Jim
1: now when i think about this identity data fabric concept i think of you know a a data source to kind of look to during an authentication or during some kind of identity activity i'm wondering could you also write back to those systems of record through the um through the identity data fabric or is it really just you're reading and you're pulling data in
2: so it's interesting because the first thing that happens when you start bringing all of this data together side by side is you realize that a lot of it is wrong, and then <laughs> because because over you know as as you start to propagate this, and I'll give you just a simple example in the healthcare world of the the physician's mobile number, which is absolutely critical, not from an, an access management or entitlement perspective, but from a business functioning perspective. If you don't have the the physician's cell phone number, right, bad things can happen. But over time, because that gets propagated into four different systems. right, you remember to update it in three, you forget to update it in the fourth, and now the data starts to become inaccurate. So when you bring it together, you realize that stuff's wrong, you start to look at the business processes that kind of shape that, and you ultimately require something that will allow you to update that and make sure it gets updated in all the right places. right, so the identity data fabric absolutely can update the data as well as read it. The one thing that I'll say is updating is always harder than reading, because you have to adhere to all the, the kind of business logic to make sure that the updates are effective. But it's absolutely possible.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the idea of the, the data being incorrect. Because that's such a huge problem when you're consulting on this. I remember w- when we first leveraged um, you know, your guys' product on that directory, you know, way back when, we pulled in a lot of information. We had, I don't know, a few hundred thousand you know, entities of data that were in there. And we discovered that there was a process where um, certain individuals were able to put whatever they wanted in for their email address, for their name, titles. And, you know, of course, if you leave this out to the public uh, or, you know, just in general, people who don't have any, you know, repercussions that they're worried about, you of course are gonna get many, you know, not work appropriate names. (laughs) <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> so, you know, keep an eye on the data quality, I guess it would be my pro tip there.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I remember we, we did a, a very large project for one of the government agencies uh, that was bringing uh, information about the user from all of the different um, DOD agencies. And uh, they, were, they started publishing it to all these other agencies that wanted to consume it. And the first response was, hey, this is wrong. And they took the position, well, it's wrong because... The agencies that that are supposed to be giving us this are giving us wrong data, and it it blew up, right? Because they got blamed for it, uh, which is you know the downside of of owning a data fabric is people look to you for accurate information, and if you're sourcing from inaccurate uh, sources, you've got a problem, All right? But but hopefully it'll help you to kind of f- figure out how to how to fix the business processes that drive that.
1: You started to to touch on a topic that I think is really interesting when you're talking about context, because I've always been into B2B and whether that's like a franchisee or a dealer or an agency model, there's the identity of the person and the identity of who the customer would be in this B2B scenario. It's the company. And yeah. each has attributes that are authoritative, but can be lended to one another. So I, as an agent, I bring over attributes of my agency and that becomes part of what my identity is. So I think that, I just wanted to, to clarify, is that kind of where you were going with
2: that? Absolutely where I'm going with that. Um, you know, the more you know about not only the the object itself, right? In, in this case, the person, right? But it could be a non person entity or a, a bot, right? The more you know about the object, including all of the objects that are related to that, the more effectively you can treat that uh, particular person or, or entity.
1: Yeah, the other thing that you had brought up was, I think you put a, um, you you made the point that you guys focus on your identity data fabric solution for enterprises. The finer point that I want to want to put on that enterprise, as opposed to like a bring your own ID scenario, right? So. I was, you know a lot of times when jeff and i use the term enterprise we're using that to compare and contrast with customer iam or compare and contrast with government iam but really when you're talking enterprise it's kind of holistically you're just comparing that as not the be, the bring your own id scenario
2: that's that's absolutely correct jim
1: and so so that's great because the the area that i wanted to go down next was like some of the what I think would be really cool use cases for this. And I wanted to hit a few of them. We, you know, in full disclosure, we had already talked. So we kind of picked out a few really cool use cases that that you have some experience with. So the first one was in the area of gaming.
2: Yeah, and, and this is a great illustration of what is possible from a business perspective, not just from a security perspective, right? Uh, in this particular case, uh, this organization had two different divisions. They had a, uh, a, a, an online gaming division and then they had an electronics division. So the idea was when somebody is playing the game because they've already logged in, right? And they want to, through that same interface, order a new controller, right? They shouldn't have to log in again with uh, potentially even a different user ID and password that they created when they got you know, provisioned into the electronics site. All right, so by, by creating this identity fabric and unifying the user and understanding that uh, John Smith over here on the gaming side is the same as Jonathan Smith over here on the electronic side, right? you enable an environment and a, a use case where the user is playing the game, they decide they need a new controller, they click a button, they order the controller, and they're not asked again to identify themselves. Uh, and it's just all seamless. So it's you know, it's a beautiful example of where identity fabric and context right, can help enable great experiences.
0: I, I want to take a step here and just say thank you because I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and it was an absolute nightmare before that came along of a user experience trying to navigate that company's various login systems and you know storefronts to try and figure out, you know, what it is is, to I get what I wanted? I wanted to give them money and they did not make it easy to do so. So when that enhancement came around, you know, hey, bravo, right? I'm going <laughs> to clap for you. So thank you.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I can't tell you how many times I personally have logged into, uh, for example, my insurance company, uh, thinking that I'm going to uh, all at once, right? Uh, file a claim and then also, uh, you know, pay a bill, right? And you can't do that because... Uh, in the world of the insurance company, they view each one of these different, you know, auto, home, life policies with with a completely different set of uh, identity infrastructure underneath, and there's no connection between them. Right, so I have to log in multiple times. They ask me who I am multiple times. Um, they ask me when I register uh, to provide them information that I've already given them. It's it's not a great experience.
1: Yeah. So the next uh, use case example that we wanted to explore was connected vehicles.
2: Yeah, so we worked on a project with one of the automobile uh, manufacturers, and the, you know they kind of view the world as, hey, we are we are just a, a device, right? It just it happens that it just so happens that our device you know moves, uh, and what we want is to understand the relationship between all of the things in the device, all of the third-party things that the device could potentially provide, like music through Spotify, right? and all the different potential users of the device, right? Because it, it, it's not just me that potentially uses that, it could be my family, right? And so if you start to understand the, the relationships between, between all those things, somebody comes and they put in their key, right? And it becomes a, an experience for them in that it knows what your playlist is, for example, right? And there's all kinds of other things like that that happen uh, magically because there's a relationship between the key, the user, the device, and then all of the third party functions that get uh, displayed on that device.
1: So the next one I think is super interesting because I think it gets to the heart of how this can solve a real world, super complex problem. And we're talking about where the data is owned by multiple organizations, but you have to pull it together for this virtual use case. And so this is the government example.
2: Yeah, so if you look at things like FEMA, right, where they're organized to address a specific uh, crisis, um, you know, Hurricane Katrina as an example, what ends up having to happen in order for that to be successful is all of these different people from all these different agencies come together for a purpose, right, to address the, you know, the the Katrina disaster. And when that is over, right, they all kind of dissipate. So it's very ephemeral. And if you don't have all of the information about those people, right, it's very difficult for these people to actually come in and function, right? Somebody comes in and represents that they work for agency action, that they can fly a helicopter. If you don't have information about the fact that, yes, this person is actually uh, qualified to fly a helicopter, all, all kinds of bad things can happen there. All right. So the idea that you're going to bring this, connect all these different agency uh, databases, bring all of this together for a specific purpose, be able to rely on that, and then uh, allow it to dissipate when the, when the project is over is, is huge value.
1: The last set of use cases that we want to talk about were just identity proofing.
2: Yeah, we, we see uh, an increased uptick in, in interest here. You know, And, and what, what an identity fabric that we have historically focused on does for you is it brings together all the information that is, uh, I, I would say, housed within the enterprise, uh, or uh, in some cases, with partners from the enterprise, right? There's also an opportunity to expand this data fabric, this identity data fabric into some of the, the the proofing data that comes from you know the the likes of Equifax, right? So now I can take all the information that I have about uh, Jeff Steadman, including the fact that he owns these policies or he's subscribing to these services, right? And also bring in Equifax data about Jeff, right? That will help me to vet the fact that this really is him or that I can use to even do cross-sell or upsell.
0: I hope that you are being careful with my data.
2: <laughs> <In that example. laughs>
0: I don't need more spam. <laughs> yeah. With um,
2: with great power comes great responsibility, Jeff.
0: Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, if you're thinking about putting this stuff in place, I, I'm going to go back to the governance side of things and make sure that you know the data being collected is following the right rules or it's being utilized appropriately. Because that's one of the things I typically see is now all of a sudden you've got this cool capability that you've introduced to the enterprise And now people are trying to use it for things it wasn't designed for or really meant to be used. And then that's, that's a rough road to go down and try to walk back if you get too far down it. So be careful about that.
2: And that's not, you know, that's not something we can control, right? We, we provide a a layer that the, the uh, enterprise then decides what to do with.
0: Yeah. That was a plea to to my foe. I I am (laughs) pros out there is uh, be careful of what you build uh, (laughs) and making sure that the data is being used appropriately. Um, you know, Dieter, you've been great with your time, and I want to make sure that we respect that. Uh, we'll try to wrap things up here in a second, but I know that you are a frequent traveler, as uh, as were Jim and I before um, you know the pandemic hit, and I'm hopeful to hit the road here pretty soon as things start to open up. But I'm sure we all have, you know, air travel stories uh, that are of remembrance, whether it's good or bad. <laughs> so here's my question for you: What's your best or worst, or maybe both? Air travel story.
2: In terms of travel itself, you never really remember the good ones, but you remember uh, all of the the bad ones. I've been uh, I've been stuck in Saudi Arabia during Ramadan where you couldn't get food. Uh, I've been in South Africa without clothes for three days. Uh, one of the things that I remember very vividly is uh, I got talked into by my travel agent. Uh, stopping in Washington from uh, trip back uh, to from uh, Zurich to Chicago and the sell on it was hey you I'm gonna put you in first uh, I hadn't seen my family in two weeks we arrived in uh, at Dulles airport and I don't know if you guys have been to Dulles uh, it's not like that anymore uh, but there used to be these big buses that only the you know only the government could think of right as a way to to solve a problem and we we landed we Got out. I had an hour to catch my connecting flight from Dulles to Chicago, uh, and the buses didn't come. So everybody kind of got stuck on this escalator. And there in the distance was a sign that said emergency exit, which I decided I was going to hit so that an alarm could go off and somebody could come and actually deal with it. When I hit that, I saw my gate to Chicago and I went there. And uh, what I forgot was that I really didn't go through customs, which caused a, a significant problem for me. So after about four hours in the interrogation room, explaining to uh, the folks that were asking me all kinds of questions that, hey, maybe there's a security issue here and it needs to be d- addressed and, and, and disclosed, uh, they finally decided that uh, you know I didn't have any bad intentions beyond just wanting to go home, and they let me go. <laughs>
0: I didn't realize that we had an uh, international man of mystery on, uh, on our show today, so... Uh good get, Jim.
2: It was awkward. It was awkward. I knew Dieter would have some stories.
0: Yeah, Dieter definitely has stories. And they still have those people, people movers there.
2: They do. Um, I actually I, I was actually in Dallas a few weeks ago and I ended up on one of those and I'm like, I, I thought to myself, man, I thought they got rid of all these, but they still found a way to use them.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, of course. Those are the weirdest ones that I've seen too. I'm sure there's probably weird stuff around the world or you know, not weird, yeah. but different. But that's the only airport that I've been to that have like these giants. I mean, this is like something you'd see like on the moon or like a Mars mission.
1: Like Star Wars 1980s.
0: Yeah, exactly. And they just set up like two or three stories. And it's Mm -hmm. just a little like room on basically, you know, four wheels (laughs) that goes back and forth
2: between
1: two terminals. It's the only airport I've ever seen them at.
2: Every time I get on that, I think to myself, this is something that only a a government agency could invent. Got to add value.
0: Jim, how about yourself? What's a... uh, a good or maybe not so good air travel story.
1: Yeah. Well, so my, my worst travel story was the first time I flew to Germany, um, got to the very, you know, we're going in for the landing and uh, the kid who was sitting caddy corner behind me was screaming bloody murder. And as we landed, he vomited on the guy next to me all over that guy. And it splashed on me too. I, I mean, I just, in one breath, I was upset because I had vomit on me, but in the other breath, I was just thanking God. I wasn't the guy next to me because he got soaked in, and it's just not a great way to start a trip. Once
2: that starts, it's a domino, Jim.
1: Yeah. Well, I thought it was, I was glad it was the end of the flight because then it was, you know, less chance of that happening, but. I think everybody in the plane was pretty horrified. I
0: can't remember the name of the movie, but I, it was, I just think of, you know, the, the pie eating contest and, uh, you know, it was <laughs> yeah. a complete and total bar for Ramon. And I think Jim, in honor of you, I'm going to play, you know, this is what I think about that.
1: So a little sad trombone for you. Yeah. Um,
0: you know, I think for me, I've been pretty lucky. And of course that probably just, you know, put set me up to fail in the future the worst one that I can think of was, you know, I didn't used to do a lot of travel. Um, and I had my first trip to, I was heading to the Philippines for work. So I had a flight from Chicago that would connect in Japan and then go to Phil and then go into the Philippines. And, you know, of course, my flight missed the connection in Japan. So I landed at, um, let's see, uh, Takeda Airport, which is kind of like in the northern side of the kind of the Toku, Tokyo area, didn't speak anything other than English, obviously. So I'm trying to navigate. They put me on a bus about an hour south to Haneda Airport, so I could see kind of Tokyo in a difference. And this is all overnight. So I, was, I'm, I get still excited by air travel. So it's difficult for me to sleep on, on a plane. But at this point, my flight had already been like nine and a half or 10 hours from Chicago to Japan. It was probably, you know, two in the morning at that point, still hadn't slept yet. And I missed my flight. So I had to wait until the next day for more flights to come out of, um, you know, Japan and into into the Philippines. And the only place that I could find to sit down and try to take a nap at for about six hours that I had to kill for the gates to to reopen up because I had to get rebooked was outside of a Hello Kitty store.
2: And (laughs) Canada
0: Airport is really nice. One of the nicest airports I've been to. But I remember just sitting outside of that Hello Kitty store on this tiny little bench trying to like doze and just the the noise of Hello Kitty going off and all the things coming out will forever haunt my nightmares <laughs> as, <laughs> as I've moved forward from there. That is by far the worst you know, experience I've had, which grand scheme, you know, didn't get any uh, anything on me <laughs> from a, from another person or anything like that. Uh, you know, certainly haven't had any issues like like that, but. Um, you know, you're dead tired. You're in a foreign airport. You've never been anywhere. And, you know, the only thing you can hear is Hello Kitty bells and whistles going off for 24 hours a day is, is not any fun.
1: <laughs> so um, one thing I did want to mention is, you know, I knew Dieter would have a good travel story because every identity and access management conference I've ever been at, there's Dieter at the Radiant Logic booth. And Dieter, you're a pretty tall guy. How tall are you? I'm about 6'5". Yeah, so he you can always you can always find Dieter pretty easily, but I know he's he's got to have been like diamond medallion status more than one year in his life.
0: That's one of the things, though. Is I, as you travel, um, it gets easier. You start to build up those kind of benefits and things like that. I know it's not for everybody, but it's one of those things. So I feel like the more you travel, the easier it becomes. Just just by way of getting those statuses and things like that. But I digress.
1: Yeah, um, and I'm also looking forward to. Probably the next conference that I'll be at is Identiverse. That's in June. Should be, it should happen, right? Unless we have another COVID wave, which uh, hopefully that doesn't happen, but uh, that'll be in Denver. That'll be the next one that I guess. I'm going
0: to try to make that. I know I'm going to, at least I'm planning on being at RSA, which I think is a couple weeks before that. Dieter, what's your next thing you're hitting?
2: I'm hitting Identiverse. Uh, I might be hitting uh, RSA, but hopefully we'll get a chance to catch up at Identiverse. Yeah, for good sure. to see you guys again in person. <laughs>
0: fist bumps and uh, elbow bumps and whatever right. the greeting of the day is. Uh, before we wrap things up, let's uh, let's take it around the room for com- some final thoughts. Uh, you know, Dieter, this has been a really fascinating conversation for me personally. what are what is something that people should take away for the folks who are listening out there, you know from from what we talked about today?
2: I think the important thing to take away is everything you do when it comes to identity and access management, right? Policies, workflow, decisions, are all based on the data. If you don't have the right data, if it's not highly available, uh, if uh, you can't get to it with the right protocol, it becomes a project within a project. So if you if you take the time and look at that holistically, and you build something that is flexible enough to take what you have and make it available for anything that wants to consume it, you can save yourself a lot of redundancy.
0: Identity at the center. Uh, how about that, Jim? Uh, what do you got?
1: I Well, I think that you know, this is what's fascinating about the identity and access management industry is that there are so many different use cases that make this up and there are the right technologies for just about every use case. And this is, you know, one of those solutions that is very necessary uh, in certain cases. Other cases, it doesn't make as much sense, but what a fascinating group of stories we got into today and really appreciate your time today, Dieter.
2: It was, uh, it was great. Uh, I appreciate you guys taking the time to allow me to do this.
0: Yeah. Thanks for being with us. So we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Um, we do a weekly live stream as well that you can find at IDAC.live that's on YouTube. Uh, Jim and I have missed the last two weeks when I say weekly, it's sort of weekly. It just kind of depends on our schedule, but, uh, we're doing that kind of new venture. So hopefully people will kind of check that out a little more loosey goosey and sort of, um, um, you know, stream of thought type thing. Uh, you can find us on the web at center.com or in Twitter at IDAC Podcasts. I'll have links to Dieter's LinkedIn profile as part of our show notes. So hopefully, uh, Dieter, you're cool with people reaching out to you if you've got questions about Absolutely. Radiant Logic. Cool. And then I'll also have a link to Radiant Logic as well so you can learn more about kind of the, the problems that they, they look to address as part of the identity space and, and beyond. So uh, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Dieter and Jim, thanks for taking the time, and we'll talk with everyone in the next one. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.